And for the last time, at least for a while, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. As today we finish this great letter of the New Testament, I feel like for the last several months I have been inhabiting this book, and I'm a little sad to move on to a new one, but we will, Lord willing. Next Sunday we will begin a series of sermons on the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. And so today I want you to focus your attention now on the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we'll just read two verses. We'll not read the entirety of the rest of the text, but our focus today is going to be on this great benediction that the writer of the book of Hebrews um, provides for those he has pastored through his letter. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 20. Now may the peace of God, or may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit, which inspired this word, which indwells all of us who believe, would open our eyes to behold the wonderful truth you have for us. And we pray that the Spirit would soften our hearts and prepare the soil of the heart to receive the seed of the Word of God. And may it take root and grow and bear fruit that would redound to the glory of your name. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We call the book of Hebrews a letter, but in truth the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It is an exhortation. And we've now reached the end of this letter, and we can learn a great deal from this benediction. This benediction is loaded with theological truth. Now, the way that writers of the New Testament often wrote their epistles or their letters, you know, epistles are not the wife of apostles. Epistles are letters. I thought I'd lighten it up a little bit. But usually what would happen, if you read these letters carefully, especially literarily, you will see that they often telegraph in the opening verses what they're going to talk about in the body of the letter, and then in the benediction and closing of the letter, they reflect back on what they telegraphed in the beginning and conclude that way. So there's a beautiful symmetry here, and basically these verses and the opening verses of the book of Hebrews are like an inclusio that wrap up the entirety of the letter. Now, this letter's a sermon, I say, and it's pretty clear that most scholars believe it is a sermon. But here's what's interesting. You can read this letter aloud in about an hour, which tells me I need to add about 15 or 20 minutes to my sermons, right? Because they're not quite an hour yet. You hope not. Just because the New Testament says something doesn't mean it's prescriptive. It might be descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, it might be a description of what he did, but not what I am to do. So, 
This is a wonderful letter. It's been a glorious letter. Learned a lot about it. I would say that this letter is the most Christ-centered of all the letters that I have studied up to this point in the New Testament. And because of the strain and struggle that the people who received this letter were under, the writer wanted to make sure to point them in the right direction. And the best direction you can point anyone is in the direction of the Lord of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he does in this benediction. And so the main message of this passage uh, is through this benediction. And the word benediction means good word. And it comes from uh, Numbers chapter 6 where the priestly benediction is given. You know, may uh, God cause His face to shine upon us and, and uh, give us peace. Uh, may His grace be multiplied upon us. The, the priesthood of Israel would offer the sacrifices. And once they understood that the sacrifices had been accepted by the Lord, they came out to the people and they pronounced the good word. And that is precisely what this is. But it's more than just a good word. It is a prayer. The author is praying for the recipients of this letter. And you could call it a prayer wish. This is the desire of his pastor's heart for this flock, that this church would prosper and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And all, most all New Testament letters, uh, not the Gospels, but the letters, end with a benediction, a prayer to God on behalf of the readers. And this benediction is rather long and involved. It's packed full of wonderful things. And yet its purpose is very simple and very direct. This letter is a word of exhortation that through Jesus Christ, this congregation would stand firm in the faith and live in a manner pleasing to God, that they would persevere under pressure. Verse uh, 15 summarizes in Hebrews chapter 13 the whole thrust. Through him, that is Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And the benediction likewise summarizes the whole letter, namely, that the readers might do God's will and please him with their lives. So there's something important here for us to notice. The writer hopes for how the readers will respond for how they will live in their difficult context, but ultimately it is not to them that he appeals, but rather to God himself. And that leads me to say this. You can do a whole lot more for a person most of the time on your knees praying for them than you can speaking directly to them. I think prayers for people are far more effective sometimes than confrontation, whether it's gentle or loving confrontation or just sort of a sweet, nagging spirit, which nobody has that I know of. But rather, pray for people. Do you pray for people? Do you find yourself not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, at the end of your rope, dealing with people sometimes? Why not pray for them? The Lord released the captivity of Job, the Bible tells us, when he prayed for his friends. Do you pray for your friends? And that is what this author does. And so it's very important for us to understand that he does something here that I think is incredibly significant. While we have the moral responsibility and moral agency 
to listen to God's commands, we lack the power to carry out what God commands. And our writer has exhorted these Christians frequently, but ultimately he must appeal to God for the good things they needed to do his will. Where do you get the power to forgive someone who has brutally wounded you? And the tapes play over and over again in your head. And every time their name is mentioned, every time you think of them, there is resentment, there is rage, there is woundedness, there is hurt. Where do you get the power to forgive? Where do you get the power to love your enemies? Where do you get the power to crucify lust that you have entertained forever? Where do you get the power to get out of yourself and give of yourself and move in a loving direction? Where do we get the power to do that? And the writer here is telling his people, especially in the phrase, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He is telling us something very significant here. Most of us, if you've been in the Christian life for any period of time, understand what the will of God is. You understand what it is we're supposed to do. But where do you get the power to do it? Especially when you don't want to do it. Where do you get the power to do it when you find yourself failing? Where do you get the power to do it when you find yourself weak? Well, this is not a news story. I want you to turn to one of my, I would say this perhaps may be one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. You think it's going to be Philippians 2, 12 through 14, but it's not. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Categorically here, Paul is saying, you look at me and what you see in me, anything admirable, anything holy, anything righteous, anything productive, anything that would cause you to regard me with esteem has its source not in myself, but in the grace of God. And the grace of God is his favor toward us. The grace of God is his kindness toward us in the face of our sin, in the face of our rejection, in the face of our failure, in the face of our stubborn, stiff-necked will. Paul is saying, when you look at me, what you see is an apostle who is incredibly energized. I was once energized to go in this direction. I persecuted the church. Paul never got over that. He never got over that he persecuted the bride of Christ. He said, but when I met Jesus on the Damascus Road, I turned around and I was driven by an amazing energy to begin to glorify and give honor to the one I had persecuted. As Jesus confronted him on the road of Damascus. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, the power exerted upon me had fruit. On the contrary, look at what he says. I worked harder than anybody. Harder than any of them. And then he corrects himself. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul also said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Paul says that there is a synergy in the work of God in the soul. 
Now, our justification is, and our regeneration is monergism, one person working. We're dead in trespasses and sin, and God makes us alive. But in sanctification, we have the responsibility to walk in faith and repentance before Him. And Paul says we work out what He works in to us. But Paul is very careful to give the credit where the credit is due. So when you look at any progress in anybody's life, at the end of the day, you can't boast in it. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory in anything save for the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Paul understood, and I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. I think a very good friend of Paul wrote Hebrews. I think a guy who know, knew Paul wrote Hebrews. But I think the writer of Hebrews was a different person. But here's the point. We need power. Where does that power come from? Where do we get the power? Paul tells us it is the grace of God. Paul tells us it is that which God works in us. And so it's very important as we think about the nature of our Christian experience that we are to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. There are often times when I find myself, and I'm sure you find yourself, saying to yourself, how in the world am I going to do this? And then you, it dawns upon you that you have no power in and of yourself. Apart from me, Christ says, you can do nothing. Nothing. And yet he says in John's Gospel, or excuse me, in the, in the first John letter, the writer John says, uh, I can do all things, or excuse me, Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. And that's where you get the power to do what God has called you to do. Um, what is going to enable us to walk in faith with the Lord? It will never be the result of human effort. We are corrupted by sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have been worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we can prove the doctrine of total depravity without ever looking at the Bible. All you've got to do is look at culture and look at history. And you see it. We have spent centuries trying to civilize man in the world. Especially in the last 200 years, human, uh, humanity has seriously proposed a utopia, a heaven on earth, either through messianic education or social reform or political action. And we've had the Enlightenment. We've had a democracy. We've had communism, fascism, and now socialism seems to be on the rise. And we've had secular humanism. And now we're in the throes of postmodernism. And yet if you look at the chaos and the confusion and the torment of this world, it is the center and core of what life is apart from the grace of God. So as we look at our own hearts, the Bible proclaims that apart from the grace of God, apart from God's Holy Spirit entering us, the heart is a self-serving, self-deceiving, self-destroying monster that is consumed with self-justification. Salvation and blessing are not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. And that is the word of God. So as we look at ourselves as the, the readers, sometimes I would read this 
letter to the Hebrews, and I would think about the pressure these people were under, the persecution they were under, the hopelessness they must have felt, and I've said to myself, I don't know how this church is going to make it. Same way I felt about this church when I planted it. There was a period of time after the first year that we saw two mass exoduses from the church, and Pam and I remember being in the fetal position in the dark, in our bedroom, in the middle of the day, seeking God on whether we should stay here and try to plant this church. And I can remember looking at her and her looking at me, and I said, I'm going to give it six more months, and if this thing doesn't turn around, I'm gone. I can't do it anymore. And you know what? Jesus did it. I thought I was something when I came here. Now I know I'm nothing. But I thought I was something when I first got here. I thought, I, you know, I thought God ought to be pretty proud to have me on his team. <laughs> Because I'm a type A, and I like to think well of myself. And I, I'm one of these people who was reared by two type A people who, who basically told me, you can do anything you want, just if you want to. Well, I got my <laughs> blessed you-know-what kicked. And that's fine. That's good. But God had to show me, it is not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. Some of you need to learn that. Your, your, your self-reliance is choking off your faith in the power of God. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is self-reliance. Relying upon myself. You know, I thought the Christian life was like this when I first became a Christian. I thought the Christian life was, okay, before I was a sinner, now I'm forgiven, and the ground is now level, give me your commands and I'll keep them. So my understanding was law, gospel, law. No gospel after that. After about two weeks, I had a Romans 7 experience called post-salvation blues where I was wondering if I was a Christian. Because I said, how could I be so full of the joy of the Lord and then do that sin? It was a nightmare. And so it took a while to learn these things. But this is important. This is what the hope of the writer is to those he's writing. So let's look at some of the major themes that I have for you in your outline. I've, I've kind of run ahead here, but that's okay because I have an hour to preach, right? The book, the book of Hebrews is certainly one of the most Christ-centered of all epistles. We find Christ at the center in its closing benediction. And the writer of Hebrews is seeking transformed lives that will stand firm in the faith. And the source of his transformation is God's own peace, the means through which it is received in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that every spiritual blessing comes. Verse 20 sees Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. So that it is only by following Jesus and being part of his flock that he shepherds, that anyone attains the blessings of salvation. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is the call of Christ, as it is made effectual by God's Holy Spirit, that leads us out of sin in the same way that God led Jesus out of the grave at his resurrection. Indeed, to walk with Jesus is to experience a spiritual resurrection that anticipates the rising of the dead unto life in the last or final days. 
This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 18-20, where he prays that Christians would know the riches they have in Christ and the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. The power, he says, is like the working of God's mighty strength, which raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, Paul can say of us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so Paul gets eschatological on us. He tells us that the powers of the age to come, the powers of the new heaven and the new earth and the consummation have now penetrated uh, this current time, this eschatological time. And his new creation is already impinging upon the passing away of this world. And once we become in Christ, we are part of that new creation. We have the powers of the age to come at work in us now. In an already fashion, but in a not yet fashion as well. We will never be perfect, but we see the power of God transforming us more and more as we behold his glory. Now, didn't know I was going to say that either. Um, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And Paul writes of his own experience, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A new and godly life is realized as we follow Christ as our great shepherd and as he works in us with spiritual power from on high. But verse 20 sees all of this as the result between a covenant between the Father and the Son. It was through the blood of the eternal covenant that God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. This is a remarkable and also instructive statement. A covenant is a binding agreement. It provides the terms according to which the two parties together in a relationship would uh, enter into. And it provides the terms by which they come together in a relationship. And so the parties in this covenant are evidently, quite evidently, God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called an eternal covenant, which means its effects reach forward everlastingly. Christ was raised from the dead once for all into an eternal life that he is able to give to his own. Hebrews 7 tells us that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, uh, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Because Jesus lives and reigns forever, he is able to offer a secure and eternal salvation. Through faith we are made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this inheritance we have is an eternal one. And Paul writes to Titus that God has poured out his spirit on us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is through Christ, therefore, that God makes covenant with us, saying in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. The new covenant in Jesus' blood, which the writer of Hebrews outlined in chapter 8, is eternal and its benefits, namely the forgiveness of sins, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with God last forever. At the same time, this covenant is eternal in the other direction, reaching forever into the past. The Bible gives ample testimony of a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. 
established in their own eternal pre-creation council. Peter speaks of Christ as a lamb without uh, blemish or defect chosen before the creation of the world. Revelation 13.8 calls him the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. God the Father laid upon the Son a charge that he voluntarily accepted with the promises that would be bestowed upon its success. Thus Jesus prayed shortly before his arrest, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The biblical data shows us that Christ accepted the following conditions. Number one, that he should take up human flesh, being born of a woman, born under the law. Number two, that he should fulfill the whole law of God on behalf of his elect people, achieving for them a full righteousness where Adam had failed. Number three, that he should receive in their place the punishment his people had deserved by their sins, shedding his own blood for them on the cross. In return, God promised him the salvation of all the elect as his brothers adopted into him as well as dominion over all things through his resurrection from the grave. Isaiah 53 verses 11 and 12 referred to this eternal covenant eight centuries before Christ's birth. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. And so this covenant agreement, between God the Father and God the Son explains why, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the shadow of our cross, our Lord could see the victory that would enable him to gather us into his eternal love. I love the way Dr. Kelly presented this to us in seminaries. He taught us, uh, soteriology uh, and uh, Christology and he basically said God the Father loved his son so much that he wanted to give his son the greatest gift a father could give his son and that is a bride and we are that bride we are that gift and he came you know you can think of every fairy tale you've ever known of someone coming to rescue people in distress and that is precisely what Christ did to come and get his bride. Now, the Puritan, John Flavel, preaching on this text, imagines a conversation that must have taken place before the worlds were born. And he uses it to exhort us to the highest devotion to God, who thus arranged our salvation. Here's what Flavel said. The Father says of us, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Christ replies, O oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than 
They shall perish eternally. I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all of their debt. But my son, says God, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And Christ replied, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it, and through it, or though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empties all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Flavel concludes this exchange, which agrees with the biblical picture, that we must blush to be ungrateful to the one who is so pure, who bore our stain, to one so rich who took our poverty, to one so innocent who paid the penalty for our guilt because of his love. How can we, he asked, ignore such a great salvation or complain under the yoke of obedience to him? Flavor writes, Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and this wonderful compassion for you, you could not not do it. That leads us now to the precious blood of Christ as we're moving ahead with vigor toward the end. Verse 20 is very direct in focusing Christ's work upon the cross according to the eternal covenant. It was through his blood that fulfilled his part of the covenant, having first appeared as a spotless lamb, perfect, without any blemish of his own, and therefore able to offer himself for others. The book of Hebrews is soaked in the blood of Christ. The great portion of his teaching has to do with the unique and saving effectiveness of the blood of the Son of God. That is, how far it surpasses and fulfills the meaning of the blood of bulls and goats daily offered by the Jews for centuries. This is, the, this, is the, this, the writer says, is how Christ saves us. Not by setting a moral example. Not by simply enlightening our minds with his teaching or his philosophy. Not by seizing power to implement a better political agenda. Hebrews 13, 12 puts it directly. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The atonement is repulsive in terms of a, as a subject to many people. They don't like the bloodiness of it. And they flinch to think that God would require bloodshedding in order to achieve his purposes. But there is hardly a more arresting sight than that of human blood being spilled. People see blood and they faint. They stumble upon a crime scene, perhaps, or a traffic accident. And they stop dead in the tracks when they realize they're looking at the stain of human blood upon the ground. Blood is the very presence of death suffering and grief yet it is with the shedding of his own son's precious blood that God makes his most important and essential final statements to this world statements we must hear and receive if we are to come to God for salvation the first statement that the blood of Christ makes is God's holy judgment on our sin it is only when we see the blood of the son of God spilled upon the earth that we comprehend anything of the sinfulness of sin. 
The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, From hence we see what is the evil of sin, how great it is that he has made such a breach between God and my soul that only such a way and such a means must take away my sin. I must either have lain under the burden of my sin eternally or Jesus Christ, who is God and man, must suffer so much for it. J.C. Ryle adds this, Terribly black must be the guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must be the weight of human sin, which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The blood of Christ also shows us the magnitude of God's love for us. Its dimensions are uh, in its dimensions appropriate to a cross that Paul speaks of God's love, praising its width, width and length and height and depth. J.I. Packer writes the following. The measure of love is how much it gives, and the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son, to be made man and to die for sins, and so to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. No wonder Paul speaks of God's love as great and passing knowledge. The New Testament writers constantly point to the cross as the crowning proof of the reality and boundlessness of God's love. The blood of Christ proclaims God's full involvement in our world at every level. People like to complain today about the biblical view of a holy, good, and sovereign God as impossible to believe in a world such as ours. Where is God in all this sorrow and suffering they accuse? If there is a God, why doesn't he do something? We are pointing our fingers at God, while in his courts of justice the situation is quite reversed. We are the ones who are under just accusation. And yet it is not to us that God himself points as his wrath goes forth, but to his own beloved son. I had a man work on my house one time in Louisiana. And he's a man who came to the church I was pastoring there. And he was infrequent. And he would show up for a service maybe two weeks in a row and you wouldn't see him for a while. Then he'd come back. And it was pretty obvious that this guy had a lot of rage. I mean, his face was red, and he, he just seemed angry all the time. So I asked him to do this work at my house, hoping maybe I could talk to him. And uh, uh, so he was doing the work, and I walked out on the patio, and he was replacing a couple of uh, French doors in the back that had rotted out in that wonderful humidity. And so where my dog scratched to come in the back door and knocked a huge hunk of wood out of my door, otherwise I wouldn't have known. So anyway, he's working on it. And so I go out and I start talking to him. And I said, well, how's it going? He said, I'll tell you how it's going, Pastor. You really want to know how it's going? So I knew it was coming. I knew I didn't know if I needed to duck or run. But he said, I wouldn't treat. He said, you, you tell me that God is my father and loves me. He said, I wouldn't treat my son the way God has treated me. And he went on a rant of all the bad. And there were a lot of bad things that happened to him. He was bitter and angry. And I said, God did treat his son far worse than you claim he's treating you. I said, let me tell you what God did to his son to save people like you who are so angry at him. And so I told him. I don't know if it ever got through. I hope and pray it did. But not at that meeting, it didn't. Uh, he, he left as angry as he was when he started. But it just, it, it had more to do with me than him. 
I, for the first time, realized that God treated His Son far worse than we can ever imagine in order to give us as a gift to Him. Now, let's forge ahead with vigor. In the light of the cross of Christ, the accusation that God is far off and aloof from the reality of the world is in fact the greatest of all blasphemies. For the cross displays for us God's involvement in this world in a way that is not only far greater than we can demand, but far more gracious than we could ever imagine. God made a covenant far off in the eternity, far before time and creation, that His will would be done, but He also entered into our world in the person of His Son, spilling His own blood and taking death unto Himself, that He might seek and save those who were lost. What about all the evil and suffering in the world? Well, I'll tell you about all the evil and suffering in the world. God has done more to address that than most people know and is in the process, ultimately, of ridding the world of it and bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, we've been calling this a great benediction, but at the conclusion of verse 21, it becomes a great doxology that is a song of praise that makes a fitting climax to everything we have learned in Hebrews. Speaking of Jesus, the writer says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's a striking similarity here with what we see in many of the Apostle Paul's writings, especially his greatest doxology. Paul concluded in Romans 11 by saying this of God, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Now there is a little bit of a debate between scholars as to whether or not the glory here is being ascribed to Christ the Lord Jesus, or whether it's being ascribed to God the Father. Well, just be a Trinitarian, and it'll be all right for all of them to get it. You know, I, some of these scholars just irritate me. I just, I just want to go find their office and punch them out with the love of Jesus. Just hug it out on them, right? Let me go hug it out. But glory is ascribed to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all God. And to all of them be glory. To all of them be the surpassing greatness that should be spoken of. They are the source. And so verse 20 speaks of His blood as the source of our salvation. It is from Jesus Christ that we gain all things with God. Verse 21 asks for Christians to be empowered to serve and please God through Jesus Christ, who is our great shepherd and leader in salvation. The last words of the benediction tell us that it is also Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, is the recipient of all of our worship and praise. And so, he closes his book by saying, Grace with you, and this is a fitting conclusion to our study in this great epistle. And let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. It reminds me of, oh, Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish preacher who died at 29 years of age. But, Scott, but McShane said this. He said, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what is the joy that was set before him? The joy of being our Redeemer, of seeing his soul satisfied as God brings his seed 
to him. He's seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. To him be glory forever and ever to the praise of his Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this benediction. It truly is a good word. And we only scratch the surface of what's here in this glorious benediction. Um, it is amazing the truth contained here. But we thank you, Father, that you are the God of peace. That we don't get peace with you by seeking it. We receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord and we get peace in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us rest in the Lord. That we would come unto him as we are weary and burdened down and laden with guilt and shame and find rest for our souls. That we would take his yoke upon us and walk with him for he is lowly and meek at heart and we will find rest for our souls now father as we continue to worship you this morning may we give as people who see the glory of jesus and we pray in his name amen